it makes sense that there would be a uh was it a blue dragon in the mountains what's the mountainous dragon blue is desert (laughs) it makes no sense that there would be a blue dragon Live from the Mundangerous Missile Command in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 155 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about targeting player characters. But first the rogue traders refuse to go quietly into that good night in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the homing missile never misses a target in the character creation forge. So we've got some news. Shane... Yeah, a couple announcements, actually. Do you want to start with the biggest or the smallest? Uh, Which is which? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good point. So the first announcement is we are finally, after three years independent, joining a podcast network. I believe we are selling out. Yep, we're giving in to the man. Oh, so much money? We've been bought out by Wizards of the Coast. It's just great. Uh, That would be terrible. I actually wouldn't do that. I have a price, (laughs) to be clear. It's remarkably low. It it is, yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so we're joining Don't Split the Podcast Network, which is run by our friends James Intracasso and Rudy Basso. If you haven't heard of them, uh, it means you don't listen to this show. Because James is heavily involved in uh, two new Wizards of the Coast books that are coming out soon, Waterdeep Dragon Heist and Waterdeep Dungeons of the Mad Mage. Rudy is also the host of Half Spellbook Will Travel and Game O'Clock, uh, two other podcasts on the Don't Split, Split the Podcast Network. You may have also heard of a couple other shows on that network, like The Venture Maidens and Dames and Dragons, two pretty cool actual plays that I've been listening to sort of on the edge of my seat and biting my fingernails and also kind of yelling because sometimes they make bad decisions, but sometimes they make great decisions. Yeah, I would say that a... a- non-zero factor in this decision was i mean obviously our our friendship with um james and rudy but also the fact that the only actual play podcast that you listen to happened to be on the network yeah i think that that's true yeah that's true and that's a thing about your taste (laughs) shall we say (laughs) which is very good by the way your excessively high standards (laughs) i tried i tried very hard to listen to some other actual plays um I like some people, but I don't necessarily listen to those shows. Um, Also, Tabletop Babble, which is a great um, D&D discussion podcast. Uh, DM's Deep Dive with Mike Shea. Um, the newbie DM minicast is a, is another discussion program. So we're we're kind of joining a, a good lineup of discussion shows as well. Yeah, I saw Lisa Chen started up uh, Behold Her on DSPN, and when that happened, I was like, "Wait a minute, no, we're next in line." <laughs> but you know, we're slow and take our good sweet time, right? With everything. Uh, so actually, we will be at the DSPN panel slash meetup at Gen Con. That's Saturday at 5 p.m. at a thus far secret location, which will be revealed at some point, I guess, on social media. Is that that how the kids communicate these days? Yeah. So, And we'll announce it on the show as best we can. Uh, Given that we don't actually know the secret location, we're kind of along for the ride, too. I mean, I hope it's in Indianapolis. I hope it's in, yeah, and preferably in a bar. (laughs) Oh, well, then we're great. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so... Uh, In other news, 
we actually have a new URL. Yes. Uh, we have, after three years, finally acquired the rights to www.totalpartythrill.com. It sounds weird to hear you say that. It does. I'm so used to saying <laughs> thrillcast.com. Uh, but yeah, so it turns out it's a very small world. Um, we knew we didn't own we we couldn't own the domain when we started the show, so that's why we took cast. Yeah, because we were like, I mean, how long is this going to last? Right. Twenty episodes, exactly. Uh, it turns out three years later, we were kind of like, oh, we should go ahead and you know acquire that. Uh, did a who is search and small world. It turns out it is owned by a listener and now a friend of the show, uh, Rob A Bear. Um, who has owned it since before we started and sent him uh, an email through like a, you know, who is look up. Uh, he was really cool. Gave us the domain for a remarkably reasonable price. Uh, one that we could afford more importantly. Um, and then it, the story kind of gets even more weird, even weirder. Yeah. Even smaller world. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, turns out Rob is friends with Christopher Gray, who ran the Let's Kill Strahd adventure for us at PAX Unplugged. Oh, you mean that awesome one where like we decimated Strahd in two rounds? Yeah, the only highlight of, of PAX Unplugged <laughs> for was, us. It was the only thing we liked. Right. <laughs> so it just turns out that like, you know, everybody involved here is good people. Uh, and, and we really appreciate that Rob was willing to offer us the name. And I guess this is the smallest news. Um, we were not nominated for Best Podcast at the Ennies this year. Nope. So you can just go ahead and ignore that category entirely. Yeah, number of nominations, total party nil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were good the first year. Apparently, we've just been dropping off. But our listeners know that. However, we do have some friends who have been nominated for uh, for some Ennies, uh, notably uh, Christopher Gray and Rob Bear. You may remember them from the section we just talked about yeah they were nominated for the happiest apocalypse on earth twice actually once for best interior art and once for product of the year it's a horror satire set in a terrifying children's amusement park called mouse park it's a powered by the apocalypse game uh, where players work together to build the park and the attractions first and then each character plays an employee at the park it's kind of a satire of, you know, childhood nostalgia and innocence and then sort of the terror that's hidden just below the surface of youth. It's basically Call of Cthulhu, but in Disney World. Yeah, so basically it's like set in a Chuck E. Cheese. I just read a Reddit thread uh, asking for horror stories from people who used to work at Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, basically, there's a lot of child bodily fluids that's involved. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, since they were nominated for both Best Product and Best Art, I guess I should talk a little bit about the art in the book. Uh, it's gorgeous. Uh, there's a lot of it and a lot of big art in the book as well. Uh, multiple full-page um, art spreads. Um, it's got some like kind of joyful and cartoonish elements, and then all of it is underlaid with this darker, more sinister, uh, realistic elements. So it's kind of a cool stylistic match to what the game is about. Um, and it reminded me a lot of cause um amongst like modern you know street art we've got a link in the show notes and voting is live right now at any-awards.com that's e-n-n-i-e-awards.com uh, you'll need to do it quickly though uh, the announcement was only made on july 4th and voting ends saturday july 21st that's this saturday uh, and there is a link directly to the voting in the show notes as well 
So, speaking of not winning any awards, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? I see what you did there with the pun. Mm. So, the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And if you are a new listener to the podcast, um, perhaps through our recent DSPN announcement, uh, I would recommend you go back to episode 76. That's where this campaign began, if you're interested uh in this little bit seems so so long ago yeah (laughs) Yeah. i mean this is the second campaign we're we're recapping after uh morning glory and eberron campaign uh run with fifth edition dungeons and dragons started in what like episode four ish one ish zero ish yeah (laughs) and uh the finale i think is in episode 73 right um but in the Dynasty and Warranted campaign, on the Dead World Malajak, the rogue traders and their two best companies of armsmen have been holed up in the Verza House, an ancient obsidian fortress once occupied by the fallen dark angel, Lord Cypher. And while your astropath flair is fixated on an ominous book in a library deep within the house, Trank and Doc, the archmilitant and chief medicae, are desperately trying to keep the defenses organized up above as you are... Uh, under full-on assault by a uh, force of mutant enemies, and they have breached the upper casements of the fortress and forced your troops to retreat and or fight for their lives. Look, it's not our fault, okay? We were doing a great job until we were attacked. Right. (laughs) Turns out you are undermanned for uh, defending a fortress of this size, and they were very determined attackers. This place is thousands of years old, and the locks don't really work anymore. (laughs) Yeah, that's the problem. (laughs) Also, they have maps to the inside, and they're literally in the walls. (laughs) Why couldn't we hold the line? So, Doc has been, uh, you know, steadfastly at work in the Medicaid, uh, trying to get the wounded patched up, making sure he can save some lives, do his uh, heretical experiments, those types of things. Um, And he realizes that this isn't going to work. So, he tasks a few of his corpsmen to handle the wounded, gathers up a platoon of the most able-bodied armsmen he can find, and proceeds back to the upper casements to meet up with Trank, where you guys are going to uh, expunge the enemy. Oh, yeah. Chamber by chamber, hallway by hallway, um, we lead a small squad back through doing what we're best at, which is killing, which makes sense for the archer militant who you know has a pulse rifle. It <laughs> makes maybe a little less sense for the, the Medicaid. Uh, but yeah, the Medicaid has combat drugs. So there's blood, there's guts, um, there's horror and carnage and violence, but little by little we're turning the tide. We're rescuing a few of our uh, injured armsmen. Uh, some of them are sort of shell-shocked. We basically patch them up as best we can and get them back in the fight. Uh, and the goal is to get people manning the rampart guns. We've got to remount those uh, so that we can face them outward and start slamming large caliber LAS fire into the oncoming hordes outside of the Verza house. And this is successful. Um, you, you basically get the upper casements back uh, under control, um, and the enemy seems to be receding. They're, they've sort of lost the momentum of their charge, and are falling back. But unfortunately, the defenders have scarcely a minute to breathe because your spotters call out a new threat, Ishan. The assault on the casements is ebbing, which is good news, but it turns out that now there's a massive battering ram being positioned at the front gate. And we'll find out what happens next, next week.
So this week, we're talking about targeting PCs. Uh, Shane, of course, this means targeting the people at your table with insults and barbs, um, learning their weaknesses, and hitting them where it hurts so that they cry and leave the game, yes? No, it's about being an obnoxious Mac owner who uh, who undermines every PC user around them. I mean, you're very Justin Long. I am not. I'm very John Hodgman. <laughs> I, am, I am recording this on a Mac right now. <laughs> you're such a poser. <laughs> okay. You could have built that same thing for half the price. Dude, you're getting a Dell. <laughs> God. I prefer Gateway. <laughs> well, I, I love got, cow boxes. I got some bad news for you. <laughs> I buy them used. So in Austria, like uh, as we were driving down the street, stuck at a red light, we passed like one of those electronic shops, and they absolutely had an iMac, like the colorful iMac, sitting oh, in like, the window. Wait. Weren't those Emacs? I don't know. Or uh, am I just super no. old? It was the iMac. It was the one that has like the translucent plastic hood over like the back of it. It was like the all-in-one monitor and, and it looked, looked like an computer. egg and had a handle at the top. You were eleven when those I came didn't out. See it that closely. <laughs> I was 64. <laughs> right. All right, but targeting PCs. So this comes as a listener question. Uh, it was part of a longer one, but we'll skip to the operative words here. As a GM, how do you judge whether to hit players where they're strong to reward their investment or where they are weak to punish their oversight? When should players feel like badasses for their specialization and when should they feel threatened? So the basic premise here is, you know, as a player, when you're building and playing a character you usually usually end up making choices about them in a sort of rock paper scissors arrangement you know you can't be good at everything so you're going to pick being good at pillar a but that means that fundamentally you're going to be bad at either pillars b or c maybe both yeah so if you're good at range combat you're probably not good at close combat if you're a master of fire you're probably weak to water right or you know maybe you're good at ranged and melee combat, but that probably means you're terrible at almost everything else. Right. And this has kind of been built into the classic archetypes since D&D was founded, right? Like mage fighter, rogue cleric. Uh, you're one of one of the archetypes or a blend of them. Yeah, it's kind of the reasoning behind having a party in the first place. You know, you can't have one character who's able to do everything on their own because otherwise, why would they share the loot with anyone else? Right. And this makes sense if... Uh, if you think about it from like you know a game of rock paper scissors like i throw rock you throw paper you win uh the problem is that in an rpg it's not really a random game the gm knows what the party is gonna throw before the encounter starts because they can see oh you're a rock and oh you're a scissor and oh you're paper and the gm just chooses what they put out there in response yeah the gym knows literally all of the party's capabilities they know if they've got a particular spell they know if they have a particular damage type um they know if they're resistant to particular kinds of damage they know if the rogue has a baseline um 25 passive perception and will notice every single trap in the book yeah they also know if you're capable of stealth or capable of negotiation right like all of those things that go into your character sheet the gm is aware of you also know your players. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you may know that they really like to run headlong into danger or they plan for four hours. Or they often prefer to set things on fire and see what happens. This presents a problem, though, because if the GM knows the outcome, then choosing any challenge for the party is necessarily going to 
reflect to the party what the GM wanted. Yeah, if you have a pyromancer in your party, is it fair of you to pick a fire elemental as an enemy? Well, that depends. <laughs> right. One thing it depends on, I would say, is pacing. Um, you know, a character only really feels like the character that you've built if they're getting to do their cool stuff. Like, whatever the game is, right? Like, if you're the demolitions expert and you go multiple sessions without getting to blow something up, are you really the demolitions expert? <laughs> yeah, if you're the barbarian and you've been able to solve every interaction without actually getting into a fight, you know, maybe that's interesting. Uh, but it also means you're never raging, you're never hitting things, you're never using your damage bonus, um, you're never using your resistance. Uh, you're basically not a barbarian. Right. Or at least you're not getting to play one. So I think you want to think about how often these encounters are happening. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be combat, but combat is the easiest to think about. Um, but the more encounters you have in a session, the more you can just directly target the weaknesses of certain characters in the group. And it's probably better to like hit multiple at once. So the fight is, you know, th there's uh, some commiseration at the table of like, oh no, I'm the fire mage and I can't use my cool fire spells. And like, oh no, I'm the rogue and everything is in bright light. Yeah, if you're targeting more than one character, this prevents you from getting into a situation where it's, you know, one person is not having fun for two and a half hours. Right. And everyone else is having a great time and doesn't necessarily notice. And then the flip side, if you're having fewer encounters in a session, then you want to target the weaknesses less often because there's just less chance to use the abilities. Every player is going to want to take those chances to do their cool stuff. Right. You need to make sure that the pendulum doesn't flip from interesting challenge to um, frustratingly impotent. You've got a character who's good at a thing. Okay, they can't do it this one time. That's fine. But if you're only if you only have one encounter in a six-hour session, that means that entire session, that character didn't get, get to do their, their cool thing. Right. So, great. That's, what, a week, a month where they didn't get to do their cool thing. The flip side is if you target the entire party at once in their weaknesses, um, so everybody is kind of fighting off their back foot, then it feels a little bit more fair. It feels like that was the challenge, right? Was This was, this was the situation that we weren't ready for, and we had to figure it out as a team. And in situations like this, you probably want to dial down the difficulty level of uh, the encounter because the difficulty is sort of built into the fact that your players aren't able to bring uh, their strengths to bear. So yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about encounter building then. The challenge here is that you are building the encounter essentially as a puzzle, like part of the of figuring out the encounter itself is for the PCs to figure out how it is they're going to overcome whatever obstacle is preventing them from using their abilities to the full. And that can be frustrating for players, right? Like that, that's where it feels like the world has conspired against them. And it feels like the GM is targeting them, not like an organic piece of the story has emerged. But it can also be a little frustrating for GMs because if you are trying to figure out like one thing that is going to stymie all of your party members, like one enemy, um, that's that's pretty complicated. And even if you're figuring out, you know, all different types of you know terrain or monsters um, or or obstacles that are going to make things more difficult for each of your players, it can be tough to put all of that into one encounter that sort of makes sense logically within the game fiction. 
So that's why I prefer to just build my encounters organically um, so that they fit the parameters of the setting and the story. So like this goes back to like even the OD&D books when they talk about dungeon ecology and like what things live in dungeons and why and how. Or you have uh, certain like terrain-based like encounter tables, right? Like it makes sense that there would be a brass dragon in the desert because that's their native like terrain. Or is it bronze? Who cares? I can never remember. <laughs> Nobody cares about metallic dragons. <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, you know, those dragons by terrain or monsters by terrain, those lists are uh, very helpful. Like, let's say you've got a fighter who specializes in melee combat. Great. You've also got a pyromancer. Um, you just look at the list and go, hey, red dragon works really well for both of those. Like, even if it's a, a young one or even a wormling, right? It flies and is immune to fire and breathes fire. Mm-hmm. Mm, great. Uh, how, how is the melee uh, fighter and the pyromancer going to handle this thing? You know, likewise, outside of just uh, picking monsters, if the players have decided that their characters are going to go after the Thieves' Guild, well, the Thieves' Guild probably has lots of clever defenses and traps and those types of things. So they can't really be upset when you throw a bunch of those at them. Yeah, if you're assaulting the Wizard's Tower. Uh, It makes sense that this is an opportunity for the Wizard to occasionally shine because they can recognize what's going on here. At the same time, uh, the Wizard who's defending his tower also knows the tricks that the Party Wizard can throw. Right. And I think the key to doing this effectively is, like, signposting, right? Don't let this stuff be a surprise. Uh, Make it clear that, you know, you're you're making a trade-off as a party if you pursue this course so if you're going to march through the night it's going to be harder to keep watch from ambush predators yeah it's not a problem it's not too much metagaming for you as the gm to actually say hey yeah you're assaulting the wizard's tower and that's going to be great for you the wizard because you're going to be able to know what's going on at the same time they know what you're capable of because they're also a wizard keep that in mind yeah or just straight up remind them right like you guys would probably want to do some research about like what's in that wizard tower and how has he secured it even uh even conan the barbarian had a had a helpful hint and guide a couple times you know and if they don't take that advice pish posh i don't do research that's great that's uh part of the story now and then they can complain or maybe they're actually looking for the kind of challenge where they can't bring their strongest abilities to bear when they're there great you now have free reign to target their weaknesses because that's exactly what the npc would do exactly uh and they're kind of you know signing up they have the chance to figure out some other secondary ability that they could rely on and if they didn't it's their problem Uh, i'd say we also recommend doing this pretty much anytime you're building an encounter but you want to build in such a way that uh, you can make changes on the fly that the encounter is flexible especially when you do want to um, focus on a particular weakness um, or stymie a particular strength of an individual character. Because, you know, maybe you misjudge the situation. There are definitely times when you've got someone who is more frustrated than you anticipated them to be or maybe is in more dire straits than you thought they would be uh, when confronting the challenge that you've placed. Yeah, so if you structure your encounters in stages, then after they kind of get through the first stage and you can get the measure of how they performed, like the second stage can kind of come in with a new set of challenges and you can scale that to um, sort of who is outshining, 
who needs a chance to shine, right? Like who do I need to share a little bit of spotlight with all within kind of one encounter or challenge. And then each of these stages, you can scale up or down uh, depending on how your players are doing. You can start targeting uh, a character's weaknesses if they're outshining someone else who is really hampered by uh, what's going on in the encounter currently. Um, some of the obstacles can also be temporary. You know, um, it maybe there's a, a fire elemental, but there's just one at the beginning. And once someone actually takes that out, then the pyromancer becomes much more useful. Or there's a way to put out those fires. Right. So that's a <laughs> that's a good summary of the dull mechanical aspects of this. Uh, now we kind of come to the more philosophical question, Ishan, which is when should characters feel like badasses? Almost all the time is what I think, personally. Like, feeling like your shtick isn't working should be rare enough that it's interesting. Uh, rare enough that it's a fun challenge because you're not allowed to do the same thing that you typically rely on because most of the time you feel extremely competent and uh, players can understand or at least realize that hey you know I'm doing something in a different fashion right now like I don't have my thieves tools because we got thrown in jail or whatever you know I've got to attempt to um, pick a lock with like a a shard uh, of metal that I found on the ground or something like that Uh, great it shouldn't last that long players should be able to overcome this and then Go back to doing the thing that they actually built or played their character to be good at. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of dependent on setting um, and tone. But I, I think in general, players are going to be turned off by games where the mechanics are difficult. Um, so, like, a good example of this is Only War, um, which is the Warhammer 40k RPG where you play guardsmen who are notoriously short-lived and not very well-trained. And so your odds of doing anything successfully tend to be very low, like sub 50%, which, as it turns out, just means you don't get to do the thing that you wanted to do very often, uh, which isn't so much reinforcing the tone of the game as much as as it is just frustrating you as you try to move the story forward. And I think that's the important balance that you have to keep in mind, uh, is that succeeding in most games at any task is sort of the chance for the players to direct the narrative and if they're constantly failing it tends to mean they're not getting that narrative control that they're playing an rpg for yeah it means they're not really participating they're just sort of experiencing the uh, depressing story that the gm is telling (laughs) right (laughs) I mean, if you want to play soldiers in a World War One trench, <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> I would just hope that your mechanics aren't based on, you know, surviving trench foot. <laughs> I've replaced all your D20s with T6s. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> I think, you know, there are certain kinds of games where it's fine to do this more than uh, you would otherwise. Like, you know, an OSR game, right? You, you don't necessarily think, hey, you know, I'm... Uh, a level zero farmer and we're going into this dungeon um, because my liege has ordered me to do it and you know hopefully I come out there with like a few coppers and maybe a rusty dagger uh, that I can sell and then before I go back in there but you know you don't really have any abilities or or powers or strengths that you're relying on anyway you know everything is is going to be terrible for you so it's kind of fine if it's targeting your weakness which is you know having 1d4 hit points yeah anything (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the the basis of the funnel in Dark Sun or I guess it's called the funnel too in, in Dungeon Call Classics, right? But the idea of like, you need to bring multiple characters because you are unlikely to live long enough to succeed multiple times, which is fine. Again, it's like it's sort of tone and setting dependent, but those games need to be, they, they signpost that and they get player buy-in in the premise before you start mm-hmm. i think it's also fine uh for a gm to work with a player to sort of build out uh, a narrative arc for a character who is you know very focused on maybe one one trick to expand their horizons within the fiction of the game like if you take your traditional pyromancer i think in fiction a lot of the times you get someone who like only uses fire and that's fine but in a game setting where there are creatures that are physically made of fire and there are a lot of creatures that are immune to fire because they breathe it or swim in it. It would make sense that that adventurer has other things that they can do. That picks other spells or learns an additional element or you know takes up the sword and has a way to actually contribute to the party when fire doesn't work. And I think that's a potentially interesting thing for a character to be confronted with. And then they go, you know what? I maybe need to learn how to do something else also. It doesn't mean I have to stop being a pyromancer. Right. How about fire and lightning? I mean, that was sort of the entire final arc of the Morning Glory campaign for me, right? Like, Brand was all about purifying flames um, as a silver flame inquisitor and it just turned out that we were fighting against demons and devils for the entire last arc so you ended up having to give me an ability that let me get radiant damage (laughs) just so that I could continue doing anything yeah (laughs) yeah we talked about it and it's like uh I mean, I guess you could pick totally different spells. It doesn't really make sense that this guy isn't fire because he's literally the shadow in the flame. Right. So I'm not changing that. Uh, how about I just give you radiant? <laughs> Salt. <laughs> it does seem to be kind of a weird world problem where inquisitors who should have holy fire have no way of dealing with demons who are largely fire based. It's just because your build was terrible. Yeah, that's sure. <laughs> to come back to like the inverse of the question, right? When should you not feel like a badass as a player? I think it's there are definitely arcs that you can run where you deliberately unsettle the players from their kind of usual comfort level. Um, prison escapes are you know an example that you've already mentioned where you expect to not have all of your stuff and to be relying on sort of secondary and tertiary abilities to solve that puzzle. Um, of getting your stuff back and then feeling like a badass again. And I think that will also work for um, encounter types that are not core to your game, right? So a combat-heavy encounter in a very socially driven game will feel the same way. Um, a social encounter in a Dungeon Crawl Classics game is going to feel very fish out of water as well. Yeah, I think it's also a nice opportunity to remind your players or you know remind the the characters in game that they're in a party for a reason that they rely on these other people and you know this happens sometimes with the the prison break when everyone's in a different cell or separated it happens when you split the party um but you know they have to rely on only their own abilities and (laughs) you can see it when when someone runs into the rogue again and is like oh god i'm so glad you're here (laughs) i had to talk and and open locks (laughs) i don't know how to do that (laughs) Yeah, that's that's actually a good point. Uh, just split the party. 
and you can get them into their uh, get them out of their core abilities pretty quickly. That's that's the secret I keep in my back pocket because we have a group of eight PCs. Also, we're idiots, and <laughs> we're like, I don't know, maybe we should go in different directions. What do you think? <laughs> Every time I suggest it, you guys do it. <laughs> that's just because we're trying to lose some of them. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Uh, I do think it's also important to um, strike a balance between like the threat of impending doom and the triumph of the players like clever good ideas Um, which is to say like if you're gonna target a player it does make more sense to target their weaknesses than it does to target their strength Um, because if you just over if you bully through somebody's strength and and like they've put up their shield wall and you've just smashed right through it like it makes them feel like there's no hope right like the one cool thing that we did wasn't enough we're just overmatched right so what can we do yeah run away i guess exactly whereas if you're hitting their weakness they go okay we knew we're weak to this we have to pivot right like we have to do something slightly different because they're targeting it but we're still fundamentally doing our stuff so like we still have some hope yeah, and it's it's fine to target the PCs in a way that makes sense within the game and then allows them to feel powerful. Like, if you have um, an, an enemy that hits hard, it's okay if they take their first swings at the like heavily armored paladin with the shield and shield of faith up. Um, you know, or the the robot who has like you know eleven inches of like adamantine plate on. Mm-hmm. Like, it's fine. That person doesn't get hurt, or maybe they don't get hit. Uh, and after like a few punches that were completely ineffective, then the enemy will probably think uh, maybe I should disengage and go attack someone who's wearing robes. It didn't completely stymie the encounter, but it did let uh, the player feel like they were accomplishing something. And now, of course, you're still targeting the weakness of the person who doesn't wear any armor. Well, that's actually that's important. You said it doesn't stymie the encounter. It could if you don't plan for that in your encounter build, right? So like know that you're going to throw away a round throwing a bone to the paladin so he can feel like an armored fortress before some of your enemies are going to go geek the mage right like plan for that sort of stuff so that you can let one player feel great before moving on to making the challenge appropriate yeah it'll buy you a bit of currency when um targeting the weaknesses right i also think for players and gms it's important to remember that like being good at something is not necessarily the most fun part of playing an RPG. Really, it's spotlight and like being the focus of the story for a, for a little bit of time. And you get that whether you are succeeding very well or failing miserably and need to figure out a way not to be failing. Like it's kind of nice story-wise if you can't use your main abilities because now you have an opportunity to role play how you're going to figure out getting out of that situation. So use that opportunity. You know, um, you could sulk for an hour and a half of combat where you, you know, your weapon attacks don't really work, or you could look up the grapple rules. Yeah. <laughs> what is the help action exactly? <laughs> and what does that look like in game? Like, how does my big burly fighter? help you aim an arrow because you know for some reason i didn't bring a bow <laughs> you got a william tell him <laughs> you hold your fingers like a v 
So, and I think the feeling you want to leave the players with after an encounter that goes poorly, right? Or that is more challenging than they thought or, or whatever. Poorly within the game. Like, right, yeah. right. Um, you want to leave them with a the thought that there was something that they could have done differently, right? If they had planned better or researched better or predicted better or even just rolled better, right? Whatever it is, like there was something in their control that would have made that encounter go differently. Um, the The whole element of targeting the players only really feels that way when the players feel like the GM had it in for them. And that usually comes because they didn't, they don't see any alternative to what they had done uh, to receive that outcome. Yeah, and make sure that if looking back, your players are like, oh boy, let's make sure that never happens again. And they do take steps to mitigate whatever obstacle you threw at them. You got to throw that again, buddy. <laughs> yeah, and then and then have it not work. Like have them succeed, get around it. Right. You know, that's the reward for them like actually trying to problem solve. Don't then throw the same thing at them and then haha this time it's different again go screw no yeah raise the stakes and throw the same encounter uh let them get the final win all right do you hear that ishan um that's me really hoping that arrow hit the apple bad news buddy (laughs) (laughs) i didn't look i didn't look i I said it was a trick shot it didn't and it's time to go to the character creation forge roll up a new character uh but before we do that let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us we do love hearing from you you can tweet at shane at mundangerous that's m-u-n dangerous and you can tweet at ishan at evil sends carne that's malice minus meat and you can tweet at the show at tpt cast you can also email us at totalpartythrill at gmail.com and you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrill.com partythrill.com finally <laughs> totalpartythrillcast.com still works too yeah the old one still works <laughs> we're also on Facebook and Instagram at totalpartythrill alright this week in the character creation forge uh, we are building the homing missile this is some sort of uh, flying bunker buster build uh, well I guess it it could be <laughs> we haven't ruled that out <laughs> you can do it exactly once <laughs> right <laughs> Okay, so what is the homing missile? So the homing missile is uh, is an expert tracker who doesn't miss with that big shot. Always hits. Always hits once. I've talked about this before. I really like builds that don't miss because I, more than anything, I hate missing. I mm-hmm. would rather do a relatively small amount of damage consistently than have like a swingy oh, i missed oh, i missed oh, i missed a oh, big hit yeah because like you gotta wait through all these turns in combat and it's finally your chance and you like roll one lousy d20 and it's like nope okay your turn next yeah, yeah. if you had one chance yeah one opportunity <laughs> it's mom spaghetti uh what is the build ranger 2 war cleric 2 sorcerer 16 I like this spread of levels because it is unusual. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it also doesn't get you ninth level spells. Nah. Well, it doesn't get you ninth level spells known. It does get you the slots. Yeah, it gets you to eight, and then and then the sorcerer goes, eh, wish, whatever. Yeah, uh, mass polymorph. <laughs> blah, blah. But it does give you some pretty amazing spells to play in the first uh, 19 levels of the game yeah so your your basic function here uh taking a couple spells that kind of give you some tracking ability so uh first is hunter's mark from ranger um, which gives you advantage on your wisdom survival and wisdom perception 
to find the target of your hunter's mark. It's also your damage bread and butter. Well, right, yeah, it just adds some damage as well. Um, but then more importantly, Mind Spike, which is a level 2 spell from Xanathar's Guide, and that just lets you know where the target is uh, if you hit them with the spell. Yeah, I've always loved this one. Like It's a, it's a divination spell. It does psychic damage. Um, you hit them in the brain uh, and then leave a little something there. Right. Uh, so once you know where they are, uh, the other like quality of the homing missile is that you don't miss. So you're going to take a, a, a spell that has a attack roll and then use your War Cleric Channel Divinity to give yourself a plus 10 on that attack roll and pretty much guarantee that you're going to land that big spell. Yeah, because the, the Channel Divinity is only if needed. You don't have to do it ahead of time. Right. So uh, what are some spells that you would use? Well, the, the bread and butter for this is going to be um, Chromatic Orb. Because it lets you choose your damage type, which means you've got different warheads in your missile, for example. Wait, including poison damage? It's a chemical weapon, my friend. <laughs> well, you can get thunder and lightning. <laughs> very, very frightening. <laughs> uh, that will scale up to a ninth level spell uh, at 10d8 damage, uh, which is uh, it's a good, good fistful of dice there. You're probably going to be borrowing all the d8s at the table, actually, to try and roll that. Um, but you'll also have magic missile for your kind of more rudimentary uh, can't miss activities. And then my personal favorite uh, and kind of the reason that I like this as the homing missile plane shift, which sends them home, sends them home. I see. I see. Yeah. So plane shift uh, is a touch. Uh, you make a touch attack um, attack roll to uh, hit an unwilling creature and then they make a saving throw. So it is kind of like two points of failure, which is generally not uh, how you want to do these things. But that's okay. It's a cool thing to do. Uh, you can send them to any plane that you would like to a random place. The plane of elemental fire or elemental water or elemental lightning. I don't care. Just a place where that person is uh, going to be in pain. Yeah, speaking of targeting their weaknesses... <laughs> I'm a pyromancer and I'm facing a fire. I'm a, I plane shift you to the elemental plane of water. Right. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, doused. <laughs> um, oh, you're a human. I plane shift you to literally any elemental plane. Right. <laughs> uh, then, of course, banish is uh, is sort of the lower level version of this. Uh, it, unless they have a home plane, uh, they'll just be sent to an uh, extra dimensional space. So. Uh, not quite the uh, finisher that plane shift is, but a little more economical since it's only a fourth level spell. You're also getting uh, the other goodies from your classes. You know, so Ranger gets you favored enemy. Natural Explorer, of course, helps you uh, with low level tracking, uh, which you're going to want to be able to do before you get some of these higher level spells. Uh, you also get spells like Long Strider, um, which lets you keep up with some of your um, longer legged or faster moving quarry. Yeah, you only get two ranger spells. You're probably going to spend one of them on Hunter's Mark. You only get one other choice. I would still choose Long Strider because I always feel like the missile has to be faster than the target. <laughs> so go ahead and give yourself that little boost. You also get level one cleric spells, which is like great. That's a pretty big list of spells, yeah. Yeah, I um, mean, you're also going to get Guidance, right, as a cantrip, which of course is going to make um, all of your perception or investigation or like tracking survival skill checks even better. And then to reinforce the whole missile aspect here of the uh, of the homing missile, you'll get your metamagic and, uh, and spell points as a sorcerer. 
And typically, uh, Empowered Spell is going to be your bread and butter. That lets you re-roll damage for a spell uh, after you've rolled the damage. So you can just pick whichever dice you'd like and re-roll those. But there's also some other useful abilities. I mean, yeah, you never sneeze at Quicken. Yeah, Quicken uh, and Twin, twin yeah. are great. Um, and then also Heighten Spell will impose disadvantage on a saving throw. Um, so plane it's, shift. Yeah, exactly. So that's going to be, you know, just throw in three points for your plane shift. As for leveling order, I think it probably makes the most sense to start as Ranger. Just get those two levels out of the way and then maybe go Sorcerer 5 to get third level spells. You can knock out your Cleric and then finish off Sorcerer. So, Ishan, who is your homing missile? My homing missile is traumatized by the time she missed that shot. That truly counted. William Tell. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, the darkest timeline. Have we already done uh, Sharon Stone from Quick and the Dead? I I don't think so. (laughs) Let me just quickly look through the... No, not Sharon Stone from Quick and the Dead, no. (laughs) Where, where, like, the the guys have um, strung up her uh, father... Uh, to hang him and they give her a gun and say if you can shoot the the rope then he's free to go but of course you know she's a terrible shot and instead shoots him in the chest she's like six years old spoilers it's, yeah also I think it's not a great movie and it's like a 20 year old movie get over it well hang on okay. the quick and the dead was fine was it the quick and the dead is in that like I don't I don't actually look it's remember. no maverick okay. <laughs> god <laughs> it's no unforgiven how about that Okay. It's no tombstone. We good? We good? Should I keep going? <laughs> yeah, tombstone isn't even in like the canon of great cowboy movies. But I love it so much. But yeah, I think it's it's more like a, a William Tell scenario, actually, where um she was foolhardy and took a dare. Thought she could uh definitely pull this off and in fact put a bunch of money on this and her best friend had full faith in her and was like, Yeah, yeah, you're gonna hit this apple. Oh, so it's snatch. No problem. <laughs> I get it. Wait, I don't remember that scene. I just remember, uh, you like digs? <laughs> the whole, wasn't the whole scheme that they were betting on a boxer who's going to take a dive? Oh, I see. Or okay. was that Lockstock? I can't remember. They're the same. Anyway. I seem to recall, uh, did he punch an apple off someone's head, but then he hit him in the throat instead? We probably punched an Tragic. Adam's apple off hey, somebody's head. Hey, look at that. Look at that. Uh, yeah, but she misses. She misses and swears She's never going to miss again when it actually counts. And she said, oh, maybe I'll be clutch, but decided on this build instead. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, the tracking ability is useful to find the people who goaded her into that uh, unwise bargain in the first place. Going to track them down and make them pay. Okay. Okay. Shane, what about your homing missile? My homing missile is an enforcer um, for a... Probably a shady organization, right? Not necessarily a great person, uh, but you know, when uh, when somebody owes the thieves guild money, they've got to get uh, a tracker on the job who can make sure that that person doesn't ever owe them money again. It's a bail bondsman. Bail bondsman <laughs> is, I, I suppose, the only slightly less exploitative way. <laughs> um, yeah, but but the idea here is that. This is the person that you call when you need somebody found, and especially if you need somebody found and then hurt. 
so that's that's what my homing missile does uh works for the local thieves guild gets set on the trail um picks up the scent of whoever the target is and follows them to wherever we need to go uh to settle up and this kind of makes sense for a party right because who knows what the party was hired for in the first place to bring them together and this is a particularly useful set of skills I mean, I'm just picturing Dog the Bounty Hunter right now. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, in you know, in, in robes. Arcane robes. <laughs> Same haircut. Doesn't have to be in robes. We got medium armor as a cleric. Heavy armor as a war cleric. Oh, yeah, okay. In a uh, full plate with uh, pauldrons, right. big, big epaulets. Which is very Dog the Bounty Hunter. That's exactly what he would wear yeah. if he could wear armor. Same hair. Same hair, yeah. <laughs> All right, before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. I like to call them total party frills. Oh, okay. Hmm? Yeah, that's a good uh, one. Yeah. Yeah, we really should have marketed that sooner. Someday, we'll, work, we'll, we'll get there. It's never too late. <laughs> You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and if you do, we'll read it on the air. This is How Are There Not More Reviews of TPT by UberGeek. A very good question, UberGeek. We almost, we're almost at 100. Yeah, we're at 96. Ooh, Who's going to be that lucky 100th review? Because they'll get some stuff, I guess. Uh, sure, yeah. Why not? Why not? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Done. We've just launched a contest. <laughs> This is a well-done, classy gaming podcast. The hosts provide some great insight into a wide range of topics that really help add flavor to any campaign, or even one-shots. As a bonus, the episodes are family-friendly, so no sudden F-bombs. Or at least they're bleeped out. Listening to them retell the story of the homebrew campaign they ran has given me some ideas I'm hoping to incorporate into my own. Definitely binge-listening-worthy, which is what I'm doing now, so I can still look forward to a lot of episodes. Oh, yes, yes you can, plus every single week. Yeah, once a week, every week for three years. Even Thanksgivings, mm-hmm. especially Thanksgiving, especially Thanksgiving, because yeah. sometimes you don't necessarily want to. Let's not pretend the holidays are a hardship; <laughs> they're a blessing. <laughs> sure, yeah, that's, you go with that. All right, uh, look, not if you're the homing missile, because your family's dead because of a one terrible mistake you made. Oh, that's the you can never go homing missile. Hey. All right, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We've got a full cover-to-cover review of the fifth edition of Vampire the Masquerade. And since it's publishing at 6 a.m. Eastern, that could very well be the very first review ever released for Vampire 5th. Oh, my God. It is the day of the embargo. Dun-dun-dun. All right, that's it for episode 155 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 